Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast, and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. And all can be found at our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. And before we begin, I just wanted to say welcome to all of our brand new listeners and thank you to everybody who has recommended this podcast to friends, family and colleagues. And also, big shout out to Patricia, who has set a new record here at London Guided Walks for attending not one, not two, but three guided walks in a single day. So get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today we'll explore the life of Annie Besant, a social activist, spiritual teacher and political leader whose contributions in the late 19th and early 20th centuries significantly impacted various fields. From her involvement in the labour movement to her work with the Theosophical Society, and her advocacy for women's suffrage and self-rule in Ireland and India. Besant left an indelible mark on London and the world. In this episode, we'll focus on Besant's time in London, exploring her early years, her challenges, and the experience that shaped her life and work. Annie Besant's story is one of courage, resilience, and an unwavering commitment to social, spiritual, and political change. Her life and worth continue to inspire us today, reminding us of the power of one individual to make a lasting impact on the world. Annie's time in London was marked by her tireless efforts to improve the lives of marginalised communities, promote spiritual and philosophical understanding, and fight for political change. Her life in London began on the 1st of October 1847 when she was born, Annie Wood, into an upper middle class family at 2 Fish Street Hill in the city of London. And that's right by the monument to the Great Fire of London. In her autobiography, she states, I was born in London within the sound of Bow Bells. She was the daughter of William Burton Percy Wood and Emily Roche Morris. Her father was an Englishman who had lived in Dublin, attained a medical degree and attended Trinity College Dublin. Annie claimed the woods, her father's side of the family, developed more in the direction of brains. Her great uncle was Matthew Wood, a worshipful company of fishmongers member who had risen to the position of prime warden. He was also a member of the Court of Aldermen in the City of London, having served as Sheriff in 1809 and then as Lord Mayor of London from 1815 to 1817. 
During his tenure as Lord Mayor, he became popular by encouraging resistance to unpopular government measures and showing great determination in his efforts to suppress the London underworld. As mayor, he played a key role in dispersing the Spa Fields riot, presenting a petition to the regent on behalf of the rioters and expressing their demands for popular representation and reform. She had always held a certain grievance over her birthplace, as she claimed in her autobiography that three quarters of her blood and all of her heart belonged to Ireland. Annie's mother was the second daughter in a large family that continued to grow as their financial resources dwindled. As a result, Annie's mother was taken in by a maiden aunt whose influence would have lasting impression on both her and Annie's characters. Like many Irish individuals from families in decline, this maiden aunt took great pride in her ancestry, tracing her lineage back to the so-called kings. Her esteemed forebears were the seven kings of France, the Milesian kings, and their impressive genealogy was prominently displayed on a parchment which adorned the mantelpiece in the modest drawing room of their descendants' home. This connection to a regal past was a constant reminder to their family's once great status, shaping the values and aspirations of both Annie and her mother. Annie describes how her mother, when a child, with her captivating grey Irish eyes and abundant curls of raven black hair, would often weep in remorseful shame over her perceived unworthiness. She harboured a vague notion that her royal, albeit imaginary, ancestors would look down upon her delicate, rosebud-like self as entirely undeserving of their disreputable majesty's esteem. Annie's earliest personal memory is of a house and garden they lived in when she was three or four years of age, situated in Grove Road, St John's Wood, which is right behind Lord's Cricket Ground. She remembered her mother hoovering around the dinner table in preparation for her husband's return, and Annie and her brother, who was two years older, watched out for Papa. The loving welcome, the game of romps that always preceded the dinner table of the older folks. The values and expectations influenced Annie's childhood were passed down from her mother, who was deeply affected by her family's history and sense of honour. Annie's mother instilled a strong aversion to anything unworthy, petty or mean. For her, the faintest hint of dishonour was to be evaded at all cost, and she taught Annie the importance of maintaining a brave front and a spotless reputation in the face of adversity. This early training in dignity and self-respect would prove to be both a challenge and a source of strength for Annie throughout her turbulent and highly scrutinised public life. The emphasis on personal integrity and honour intensified her distress when facing public criticism and slander. Still, it also fostered an unwavering sense of self-worth, enabling her to stand along against her detractors. This deeply ingrained pride shielded Annie from degradation and despair, even when ostracised from her family, friends and society. She remained grateful to her mother's influence, who was loving, gentle, proud and pure. 
an ideal role model for Annie during her formative years. Annie's life took a dramatic turn when her father passed away when she was only five years old. Annie writes of her distinct memory of the events leading to his death, as recounted by her beloved mother. He had always maintained an affinity for the profession he had trained for. With many medical friends, he would occasionally accompany them on their hospital rounds or join them in the dissection room. As face would have it, while dissecting the body of a person who had succumbed to rapid consumption, her father cut his finger on the edge of the breastbone. The cut failed to heal promptly and the finger became swollen and inflamed. I would have that finger off wood if I were you, remarked one of the surgeons a day or two later, observing the wound's condition. However, the others dismissed the idea, and her father, initially inclined to undergo the amputation, was convinced to leave nature alone. Around mid-August 1852, her father became soaked whilst riding on the top of an omnibus, which led to a severe cold that settled on his chest. Annie reports how one of the most eminent doctors of the day, as skilled as he was brusque in manner, was called to examine him. He carefully expected him, listened to his lungs, and left the room, followed by her mother. Well, she inquired, only slightly concerned about the answer, except for how it might trouble her husband to be confined at home. You must keep up his spirits, was the thoughtless response. He has galloping consumption. He won't be with you for more than six weeks. Her mother staggered back and collapsed on the floor. Half an hour later, she was back at her husband's side, never to leave it for more than 10 minutes at a time, day or night, until he lay with closed eyes in the eternal sleep of death. Her mother locked herself in a room overnight, and when she emerged the next day, her raven-black hair had turned white. Her father's death left the family with barely any means to survive, Her resilient mother took up the responsibility of providing for the family by operating a boarding house for boys attending Harrow School. Despite her mother's efforts, she couldn't fully support Annie and, as a result, persuaded her friend Ellen Marriott to take care of her. Miss Marriott was the favourite sister of Captain Marriott, the famous novelist, a contemporary and an acquaintance of Charles Dickens. And Annie describes Ellen Marriott as a maiden lady of large means. Under Marriott's care, Annie received a well-rounded education. Marriott taught them everything, recitation, reading aloud in English, French and later German, everything except music, for which he had a master who taught composition. Not only did Annie learn from the knowledge Mayat imparted, but also from the love of learning she instilled in her. It remained a constant motivation for further study for Annie. She was instilled with a deep sense of obligation towards society and an unwavering belief in the potential of independent women. 
This nurturing environment enabled Annie to develop her intellect and character, preparing her for the challenges she would face later in life. As a young woman, Annie had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe, broadening her horizons and exposing her to diverse cultures and perspectives. At 14, she went to Dusseldorf, as Annie wrote in her biography. For some months, we had been diligently studying German, for Miss Marriott thought it wise that we should know a language fairly well before we visited the country of which it was the native tongue. We had been trained also to talk French daily during dinner, so we were not quite helpless foreigners. They took a steamboat from St Catherine's Dock, and the next day they were in Antwerp. During the winter of 1862-63, Miss Marriott was in London and for a few months, Annie remained with her. It's worth understanding what London was like in the 1840s and 50s when Annie was a young lady. London was a city of stark contrasts and profound transformation. At the heart of the British Empire, it was a bustling metropolis teeming with innovation, commerce and cultural exchange. Yet, beneath the veneer of progress, the city faced a myriad of social, economic and public health challenges that would shape the lives of its inhabitants and leave an indelible mark on the young Annie. The rapidly growing population, driven by the Industrial Revolution, led to overcrowded living conditions, widespread poverty and rampant disease. Amidst this complex urban landscape, Annie was raised and exposed to the stark realities of inequality and social justice. These formative experiences would later ignite her passion for activism and fuel her determination to challenge the status quo, ultimately shaping her thoughts and actions as a prominent social reformer. London emerged as the world's most magnificent city in the Victorian era. As Britain underwent the Industrial Revolution, its capital simultaneously enjoyed the rewards and faced the challenges that came with it. In 1800, the population of Greater London stood at around 1 million people, a figure that would dramatically increase to 6.5 million by 1900. The city saw growth in upscale areas like Regent and Oxford Streets in the west, while new docks in the east reinforced London's position as a global trading hub. One of the most significant factors contributing to London's expansion was the arrival of the railroad in the 1830s. This development displaced thousands of residents and prompted a population shift from the city to suburban areas. But the country, and indeed Europe, was now a lot smaller place, a lot easier to access. The explosive growth and global trade dominance came at a steep cost, marked by unimaginable squalor and grime. Personal hygiene and clean clothing are low on the list of priorities. The odour of unwashed bodies in packed, confined spaces would have been suffocating. 
The Victorian solution to addressing the needs of the poor and destitute was the introduction of the new poor law in 1834. Before this legislation, the responsibility of supporting the impoverished fell upon individual parishes. The new law mandated that parishes collaborate and establish regional workhouses where those in need could seek assistance. However, the workhouse was essentially a penal institution for the poor, where civil liberties were stripped away, families were torn apart, and human dignity was crushed. The living conditions and treatment within these workhouses were often so abysmal that many truly impoverished went to extreme lengths to avoid seeking relief there. Rather than offering a compassionate solution to poverty, the new poor law further marginalised the underprivileged and reinforced the social stigma associated with poverty. And this system perpetuated the harsh realities faced by the poor in Victorian society, creating a cycle of desperation and struggle that was difficult, maybe impossible to escape for many. Wealthy and impoverished individuals intermingled in the congested city streets. Street sweepers strove to clear the roads of manure, a byproduct of the numerous horse-drawn carriages. Following the Stage Carriages Act in 1832, the Hackney Cab was progressively replaced by the Omnibus as the primary mode of transportation within the city. By 1900, 3,000 horse-drawn buses transported 500 million passengers annually. A traffic count conducted in Cheapside and London Bridge in 1850 recorded 1,000 vehicles per hour traversing these areas during the daytime. This contributed to an immense volume of manure that needed to be cleared from the streets. During rainy weather, straw was spread across walkways, storefronts, carriages themselves to help absorb the mud and moisture. The city's countless chimneys spewed coal smoke, causing soot to accumulate everywhere. In several parts of the city, raw sewage ran along the gutters that poured into the Thames. Street merchants loudly advertised their goods, adding to the cacophony of urban sounds. Pickpockets, prostitutes, inebriated individuals, beggars and vagrants contributed to the vibrant but chaotic scene. English journalist and socialist James Mayhew estimated that during the 1850s, around 12,000 costermongers or street sellers made their living on the streets of London in his book London Neighbour and the London Poor. These enterprising individuals sold various products, including fruits, vegetables, flowers, fish, pies, muffins... You've all heard of the Muffin Man on Drury Lane, and various other items. Typically, costermongers would start their day early in the morning, purchasing goods from London's bustling markets, such as Billingsgate Fish Market, Covent Garden or Borough Market, and they would negotiate the best possible prices using their stock money. Once they acquired their merchandise, these street sellers would transport them throughout the city using rented barrows. 
As they navigated the crowded streets, they would hawk their products to passers-by, providing a vital service to the residents of London. In doing so, costermongers became an essential part of the city's commercial landscape, contributing to its vibrant atmosphere and ensuring that goods were accessible to people from all walks of life. And as you walk around London, you might notice occasionally the odd sign saying no hawkers or no costermongers. So uh, they weren't welcome everywhere. Temperatures in the city were extreme, and I'm not just talking about the weather, but the need for heat and warmth. So the heat, of course, near a fire would have been overwhelmingly intense, while being further away, the cold would have chilled you to the bone. And indeed, in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, he talks about men stamping their feet and beating their chests as they huddle around a brazier, which is an open fire on the street. Main streets were lit by gas lamps, and if you haven't listened to episode 96, Gas Lamps of Westminster, I certainly recommend you do that to get an idea of the streets of London and the light available to them at night. Now, I said the main streets were lit, but that means that the side streets and less important roads may have been left completely in the dark. And then that meant that link boys were needed to be hired and their job would be to guide travellers to their required destination. And indoors to the light there, a solitary candle or open lamp battles the darkness. And of course, gradually causing the ceilings to become blackened, which is why the Victorians really loved dark colours inside their homes and pubs. And this was the world that the young Annie Wood was brought up in and called home. At Christmas in 1865, a little mission church was opened in a very poor district of Clapham, Annie's grandfather's house was nearby in Albert Square and she and her favourite aunt dedicated much time and effort to this little church. At Easter they adorned it with spring flowers such as dewy primroses, fragrant violets and the yellow bells of wild daffodils and it brought immense joy to the impoverished who Annie comments that many of the little children had never seen a flower before. It was here that Annie encountered the Reverend Frank Besant, a young Cambridge man who had recently taken orders and was serving the small mission church as a deacon. During the summer of 1866, Annie became engaged to the young clergyman she had met at the mission church earlier that year, despite their limited acquaintance. They had spent a week together as the only two young couple in a small group of holidaymakers and had naturally become companions during their walks, rides and drives. Just an hour or two before he departed, the young Reverend Frank Besant asked Annie to marry him, assuming her consent giving their close companionship. This assumption might have been fair for those who considered all men potential husbands, but Annie didn't. He was entirely mistaken concerning Annie, whose thoughts lay in an entirely different direction. 
But at the age of 19, with a true devotion to Christ and desire to serve, she did what everyone had told her was the obvious and also respectable thing to do. During the summer of 1867, Annie became officially engaged and married 14 months later at the age of 20. At one point in between, she did attempt to break off the engagement, but when she broached the subject with her mother, her mother's pride fiercely opposed the idea. Her mother questioned her whether a daughter would break her word and dishonour herself by jilting a man she had committed to marry. Annie's mother could be resolute, and when it came to matters of honour, and Annie had always been accustomed to yielding to her mother's wishes complied with her request. As a result, Annie married in the winter of 1867 with what she described as no more understanding of the marital relationship than a four-year-old child. Annie's sheltered life, free from any knowledge of evil and protected from pain and anxiety, left her wholly unprepared for married life and defenceless against a harsh awakening. Reflecting on her experiences, she concluded that it was a grave mistake to raise a girl to womanhood in complete ignorance of life's duties and burdens, only for her to face them for the first time without the familiar support and refuge of a mother's love. While perfect innocence may be a beautiful attribute, it is also dangerous, and a young woman should know good and evil before she leaves the sanctity of her mother's love. She claimed that many unhappy marriages can be traced back to the beginning, marked by the terrible shock to a young girl's sensitivity, modesty, pride and feelings of utter helplessness, confusion and fear. She writes about the inequality of access to the world, having been exposed to broader experiences through public school, college and the outer world, men might struggle to comprehend the extent of such childlike ignorance in some girls. Nonetheless, this ignorance was a reality for many girls and she believed that no mother should allow a daughter to enter into the marriage bond without first removing the blindfold. Annie writes in her autobiography, Looking back over 25 years, I feel a profound pity for the girl standing at that critical point in life, so utterly, hopelessly ignorant of all that marriage meant, so filled with impossible dreams, so unfitted for the role of wife. All my eager, passionate enthusiasm, so attractive to a man and a young girl, were doubtless incompatible with the solid comfort of a wife, and I must have been inexpressibly tiring to the Reverend Frank Besant. In 1868, Annie made her first serious attempts at writing. She wrote a series of short stories that were rather lightweight, as well as a more ambitious work titled The Lives of the Black Letter Saints. 
For those unfamiliar with ecclesiastical terminology, the Church of England's calendar features various saint days. Some are red-letter days, printed in red and have designated services, while others are black-letter days, printed in black, without specific services. She thought writing a sketch about the saints' lives associated with black-letter days would be interesting. She began gathering historical and legendary books to compile her facts. The ultimate fate of this book remains unknown. The short stories, however, experienced more success. She submitted the first one to the Family Herald and weeks later received a letter containing a cheque for 30 shillings. Despite earning considerable money through her later writing, the sheer joy of that first payment remained unmatched. It was the first money she had ever earned, and the pride in earning it was amplified by the pride of authorship. The thrill of having something of her very own to give was soon dampened when she learned that the money was not really hers. As English law dictated, all married women's earnings belonged to her husband. Over time, she earned a few pounds for stories published in the same journal. The Family Herald had a unique practice of paying its contributors upon acceptance of their work, whether or not it was printed immediately. Encouraged by her modest successes, she began writing a novel, which took a significant amount of her time to complete. Although the family herald ultimately rejected it, she received a kind note suggesting she write a novel of purely domestic interest. By this time, Annie was deeply engaged in theological doubts, and so never managed to write that domestic novel. In January 1869, Annie gave birth to her first child, a healthy boy. In August of the next year, she gave birth to a girl, but her own health was failing. In 1871, both children caught whooping cough and Annie was worried that the slight Mabel would not survive. For months, Annie herself was ill with headaches and taking pills and opium to combat the pain. It was a dark time in her life. Describing herself as a bewildered child woman, beaten down by the cyclone of doubt and misery. It was a time when her physical crisis was over that she decided on her line of action. She resolved to take Christianity as it had been taught in the churches and carefully and thoroughly examine its dogmas one by one. The family moved to an agricultural village by the name of Sibsey in Lincolnshire and it was here during her months of suffering anxiety and distress where she engaged in practical parish work, caring for the sick and attempting to improve the lives of the poor. The movement among agricultural labourers, spurred by the energy and devotion of Joseph Arch, was beginning to gain attention in the Fens, and she strongly sympathised with the labourers' demands, as she was familiar with their living conditions. Annie was horrified to discover a cottage with four generations living in one room. The great-grandfather and his wife, the unmarried grandmother, the unmarried mother and the young child, plus three male lodgers so that was eight people crammed into a small poorly ventilated space 
Other cottages, she mentions, were in such disrepair that rain poured through their roofs, making rheumatism and ague constant companions for their occupants. I mean, how could she not sympathise with any organisation aiming to improve the lives of these people? However, the Agricultural Labourers Union faced strong opposition from the farmers, who refused to employ anyone affiliated with the union. One example involved a young married man with two small children who attended a union meeting and talked about it when he returned home. Unable to find work in the surrounding area, he became desperate and turned to alcohol. Visiting his cottage, which consisted of a single room and a lean-to, she found his wife suffering from fever, holding their fever-stricken baby and the second child lying dead on the bed. The wife explained that they were starving and had no other place for the dead child until the coffin arrived. That night, the desperate man, his sick wife and child, and the deceased child all shared the same bed. Anne had an inquiring spirit and she wanted answers, but was frustrated by the narrowness of a married woman's life in a remote country village. She worried about human suffering, about Christ's punishment, about hell. And by reading liberal theologians, she managed to ease herself out of the hard, old evangelical belief. One day, she locked herself in the church and, feeling rather foolish, climbed to the pulpit. She tried her speaking voice. She didn't know what she was going to say. But then... After hearing the words and feeling her heart beat so vigorously, she knew she couldn't go back to the life that was expected of her. A vicar's wife was expected to be entirely supportive of her husband. The conditions of the poor and long and suffering illness of her own child undermined her belief in the justice of life. Her marriage was failing and she began to lose her faith. Her views shifted towards anti-religious beliefs. Tensions in their relation escalated, ultimately resulting in a legal separation in 1873. And at the age of 26, Annie returned to London. And that is where next week's episode shall begin. If you'd like to know about more amazing women in the city, then please book my Women in the City Walk at londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash guidedwalk forward slash city hyphen women. If you like what we do, then please rate and review. It's very, very much appreciated. And thank you to everybody who has already rated. And thank you to all of you who have shared suggestions on what subjects we should cover in the future. We are working our way through the list. That's all for now. Until next time. Mm-hmm.